Having said that, let's go now to um, the Word of God from Matthew chapter 13 and verses 47 and following. Jill? Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, I didn't plan to preach on hell the morning after Halloween, um, but here we are. So how appropriate it is, and I couldn't name my sermon anything, but hell not just for Halloween. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His uh, presence as we... Um, consider this most sobering and horrific topic. Uh, Father, we praise you that you're the God of heaven and earth. Uh, We have celebrated your salvation this morning boldly and strongly. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingling down. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have provided a way of salvation. God, we thank you that you are the essence of love. We know nothing about love. We know nothing about mercy. We know nothing about grace. We know nothing about forgiveness outside of you because it all originates in you. And yet, Father... I acknowledge this morning that your word is clear, that we know nothing about judgment. We know nothing about justice. We know nothing about wrath. We know nothing about righteousness and holiness apart from you either. And so, Father, I pray that you would come by your Spirit and you would do your work in our minds and hearts. Father, would you allow us to to be changed in our thinking in ways that we need to be changed. And Father, I pray that you would mobilize each one of us toward worship, greater worship this morning as we consider your teaching on hell. Father, I pray that you would remove all the baggage that we bring to this topic and you would give us new eyes to see and new ears to hear that your word might shape what we believe, what we think, and how we respond. Oh God, we need you this morning. Father, I need you. I pray for wisdom. There's so much I can say and not say. And so would you govern my tongue, would you govern my mind, govern my heart. And Father, lead us clearly this morning by your Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like for a show of hands this morning uh, of how many people here have ever fished with a net. Really? We've got a lot of people that fished with a net. Uh, That's pretty amazing. Well, most people in here have never fished in a net. 
with a net. And I would assume most people in our culture have not fished with a net. Um, primarily because that is not something common to our existence. If I were to say how many people here have ever gone to the store, everybody in here would have raised their hands. We've all gone to the store. And you see, when Jesus uses parables, he, the, the power of the parable and the relevance of the parable is in direct proportion to how those who are hearing the parable have experienced what he is giving a metaphor for, if you will. And so when we come to this metaphor of hell, and he, Jesus uses the net that was thrown into the sea that gathers a bunch of fish and brings it up, and here are the good ones, these are the ones we eat, oh, those are the ones we don't eat. Most of us in this room are kind of like, yeah, eh, I don't get that. But if I said this morning, or if Jesus stood before us this morning, I doubt he would use the the parable of the net. He'd probably use another parable that comes right into our world. Maybe the kingdom of God is like an NBA draft, where the good are brought in and rewarded handsomely, but the bad are overlooked, never to, to touch a court again. Uh, or the kingdom of God is like a pumpkin patch, And you go and you pick the the good pumpkins, but the rotten pumpkins you throw out and you put aside. You see, what Jesus is illustrating by this parable is something that is common to all of our lives, and it's the whole concept of judgment. Um, Although our culture tries to get away from judgment, we say we just want a God of love. We just want to, I mean, we just cannot accept a God who uh, condemns some to hell because our God is a God of love. We're really inconsistent because judgment and justice and, and, and wrath is central to our everyday experience. It really is. Um, we are constantly aware of the reality of guilt and shame, and that we don't measure up. And so, my proposition to us this morning, and really what Jesus is bringing to us, is the whole reality that God is not just a God of love, He's certainly that, but He's also a just judge. And if we're going to accept the Jesus of the Bible, we can't create one that is, that is a, a figment of our imaginations and, and a figment of our present desires and our cultural whims. We have to go to his word and say, okay, I receive this God, though I may not like it, though it's uncomfortable, though it's not popular, if the scriptures clearly teach it, I must embrace it. The concept of a just judge is absolutely universal. I mean, I dare you to find a person, unless he's just absolutely narcissistic, who is not struggling with this idea of guilt and shame. I mean, all of us are striving. We are, we are overworking ourselves to get to a point that we feel as if we've measured up to some universal standard. And this is common to who we are as human beings. John Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, told a story, wrote a story about a man who was playing in a park. 
And he was playing and, and having a good time until he noticed in the distance a figure that looked like a man standing, staring at him. And the more he tried to play and enjoy himself after noticing that, that figure of a man in the distance, uh, the more uncomfortable, the more paranoid he became until finally he just became mad and he made his way to this figure of a man. And the closer he got, he finally realized it was a mannequin. And then he went back to his playing. And what Sartre was doing is he was illustrating the reality that we all live, and, and this is Sartre's idea, under a gaze. And we all feel that. Because even when we do something we know we shouldn't be doing in private, we still feel a gaze. We feel that still small voice. We feel our conscience. We, we feel something judging us. And we know we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. We all know we're being judged. But we also know that we're all judging. I mean, how many judgments have you made in this room in the last 45 minutes? <laughs> how many judgments have you made of me? How many judgments have you made with that friend or that person or that acquaintance across the room that didn't seem to talk to you or that person that did make it a point to talk to you. I mean, we're constantly judging. We can't get away from it. Why is that? If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, this did not exist. God and man lived in harmony with one another and with God, and the concept of guilt and shame were absent. Why? Because the relationship was one of acceptance and love. And yet, the very first thing that happened when sin entered the picture, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, is there was a cosmic fracture between God and man and between man and man. And it's unavoidable. We read in Genesis 3, 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, very first verse after they sinned, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately they hide. The very first thing, guilt, shame, I've got to cover, and we've been covering ever since. And then the relationship with God became very uncomfortable. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what is going on here? Isn't God a God of love? Has He changed? He has not changed. But what happened is Adam and Eve came into experience with the reality that God is not just a God of love, but He is a just God. He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And He cannot tolerate sin. There is something that God cannot do, and that is just kind of discount our sin. He is just, and His justice must be satisfied. And so we have this cosmic fracture between us and God and between us and each other. And we're constantly wrestling with guilt and shame and trying to measure up. And we run to our hobbies and we run to pleasure and we try to 
do anything and everything we can possibly do, burying ourselves in work, burying ourselves in sex, trying to change our identity so to say, hey, this is who I really am now. We will do anything to try to get to a place where justice and judgment and wrath and sin and guilt and shame are under our control and under our dominion. And yet we do not succeed. Why? Because only God can heal the fracture between Him and us. And He's done that in the person of Jesus at the cross. And there is no substitute for that. You see, it is the cross that reconciles God and man together because in Christ we are declared righteous. Isn't that beautiful? In Christ, because He lived under the law in our place. When God looks at us because we've received Jesus through faith and we have been declared by the judge righteous on the basis not of our obedience but on the basis of Jesus' perfect obedience to the law, we are declared righteous. And we are also declared forgiven because Jesus became our sin and God the Father rained down His wrath upon the Son. Jesus, the night before He faced the cross, what did He pray? Father, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as You will. What is the cup? Any Jew, anybody familiar with the Old Testament would have known that the cup was the cup of God's wrath that was poured out. And what Jesus was saying was, I'm going to the cross, I know what's coming. Is there any way, is there any other way? Can't you just be loving But he knew the answer. My Father is not just love, but my Father is just. And so on the cross, he faced the reality of the wrath of his Father. The mercy and the kindness and the goodness of God was removed from the Son. And the Son experienced nothing but eternal wrath for our sin. And he exhausted God's wrath for his people. So that now through faith, we might receive reconciliation. but not all receive reconciliation. And so those who do not receive reconciliation are cast into a place of utter torment and justice. Well, as we come to this, I want to give three qualifications before we get too deep into it. And the first is this. To believe in hell does not mean that you have to like it. All right, can you relax your shoulders a little bit? All right. To believe in hell, to, to accept what I'm about to teach from God's Word does not mean that you have to glory in it nor like it. Number two, to believe in hell does not mean that God is not a God of love. And thirdly, to believe in hell does not mean God is unfair. In fact, to believe in grace means God is unfair. And we want Him to be. So let's look at it. Let's look at the nature of hell. Let's look at a a broad brush description of hell. And the first thing that we have to understand is that hell is tragic. Hell is tragic. We have to get a biblical picture in our minds of what hell is. And the first thing that we need to see is that God does not rejoice in hell. 2 Peter 3.9 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So He does not glory in hell. He does not stand in heaven and say, Oh, I can't wait. And because He does not glory in hell, but He wants all to come to repentance and faith, He does not expect us to glory in hell. The disciples, James and John, learned this. There was a town of the Samaritans, a village of the Samaritans that rejected Jesus. And we read this. But they, James and John, or excuse me, they, meaning the the people in the Samaritan village, did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Isn't Isn't that how... The church often responds to the sins of the culture and the sins of the world. God, just rain your fire down on those people out there. But that's not the heart of Jesus. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you're of. He said, That's not my spirit. Don't you glory, don't you glamour in the judgment of others and the sins of others. See, the reality of hell is not to make us hateful. To receive the teaching of hell is not to make us mean-spirited. Where I preach hell, fire, and damnation, and I get some kind of pleasure out of it. Matthew 7, 1-5 tells us, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus didn't even come to judge, he said. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That should influence how we should posture ourselves in this world, friends. Jesus didn't come to judge the world, so why in the world do we think we can? Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So we can't gloat in it. But we do need to understand it. I want to give a few things. I just want to kind of give you an overview of what hell is. And I have to say that um, probably the theologian that has influenced me or the person that's influenced me most on this topic of hell was Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I came across a little book years ago, probably 20 years ago, called Heaven and Hell, and it's a compilation of of Edward's sermons. And um, I've taught a lot on the topic of hell in seminars um, and in other places, and um, I just have not found anybody that has presented the biblical teaching better than Jonathan Edwards. And so these things really come from his thought and his study of the Scriptures. And the first thing that Edwards tells us is that that God is the hell of hell. You follow me there? I mean, just as God is the heaven of heaven, it's not the what we're going to have in heaven that's really the essence of heaven, but God is the essence of heaven. 
And everything else is secondary to just being with God. Well, in the same light, God is the hell of hell. Listen to Matthew 10:28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that one? Fear Him. Fear Him. Fear God. Because He's the one who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Luke 12, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he's killed, he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. As God is the heaven of heaven, God is the hell of hell. What does that mean? I have no idea. I have no idea other than the reality that when we look at the metaphor of fire, which is probably the predominant metaphor for hell, we've got to say, man... Okay, that's bad. I can't imagine. Eternal fire. But can you imagine God's wrath? He's the one pouring the cup. He's the one identifying all of our sins specifically. He's the one pouring out justice. And He's using all the elements of hell to satisfy His justice, which is an eternal demand. God is the hell of hell. Secondly, hell is deep agony of the soul and body. Fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, as we think about hell being torture of the body, that's bad enough. I've got a good friend who's actually here this morning who lives in chronic pain. I can't imagine. I can't imagine because I had a I had an injury for about six weeks where I couldn't move. It was a herniated disc in my neck, and I knew in that moment I'm too weak. <laughs> I'm too weak to live like that. I, I'm too weak to to live in ines, inescapable pain. Some of you in here live in chronic pain, and you're getting just a taste of what it's like to be in hell. Just a taste. Notice the passage says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we can get the weeping. And, and I've preached on this or I've taught on this numerous times, but I've never focused on the gnashing of teeth. But for some reason, maybe because I've never really dug into that, that I, I did this week and I actually texted a dentist friend of mine and I said, hey man, what's the deal with the gnashing of teeth? And this is what he texted back. He said, grinding and clenching teeth is directly related to stress. And studies show that reducing stress lowers the amount of grinding patients do at night. They even did sleep studies and showed that 10 minutes of quiet time or meditation before bed reduced grinding by 50%. He said, did you hear it? Clenching of teeth or gnashing of teeth is directly related to stress. We are the most stressed culture in the world. <laughs> I just read a book called Crazy Busy on uh, one of my study weeks uh, over the past month. 
And in that, it's it's from a Christian perspective and and, and giving us an insight into this whole idea of our need for Sabbath rest. And one thing that it pointed to that really caught my attention was the impact of social media on us as men and women. And I think the reason that caught my attention is because it's something that I've been really wrestling with and struggling with personally to the point that I've had to turn those instant notifications off most of my news services. And yet, when I do go and I read, I have about four different papers that I read, um, you know, on um, the Internet or on my iPhone, here's what I'm concluding. Just yesterday, I read that there were 274 people killed in a plane crash in Egypt, a Russian plane that crashed in Egypt. I read that in New York City, there were four children that were run over by a car while trick-or-treating and died. I read about a man in Colorado Springs who yesterday morning at 8.30 took a rifle and just started walking through a suburban area and killing three people. And on and on and on we can go. And I'm convinced that you and I were not built to carry the burdens of the world. If I'm, I'm either going to become callous to death and suffering, or I'm going to become so stressed and overwhelmed by the information intake that I'm getting all day every day, that I just collapse. And yet that's the life every one of us in this room lives. Stress. What do we do with it? I don't know. Turn it off. Unplug. Who can do that? But I think in that we get a picture of hell. Because in hell, everything that we've ever done, all the evil of the world comes into perfect focus and all we can see is that. And there's no relief. There's no unplugging. There's no turning off. It's just my sin and the sins of others and the evilness of my sin and all the things that I did and all the things that I didn't do and all the things that I left undone for eternity. And there's no sleep. And you wonder where the gnashing of teeth comes from. I believe that that's it. And to make matters worse, hell beholds heaven. Jesus told a parable in Luke 16, 19-31 about a rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus was a very poor man and he would come and he would, he would just wait for the crumbs to fall off the rich man's table. And that's how he got his sustenance. That's how he got his food. And you could tell the rich man did not even know his name. It's interesting that Jesus mentions his name but not the rich man. Something to be learned there. Well, then they both die. And the poor man, Lazarus, goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell. Why? Because he got his in this life. That's what the text says. But while in hell, the rich man beholds Lazarus in heaven. And, and, and the, uh, the rich man cries out to God, and he says, Would you allow uh, Lazarus to take one little drop of water and just drop it on me? Just give me one little drop of relief. And what we see in that is that hell beholds heaven, but I'm not so sure that heaven beholds hell. 
I remember when I was incapacitated with my neck, I did a little procedure, had a steroid shot in my neck, and I actually felt a little better, and we went on vacation. And after we got to our vacation spot, all the pain came back, and I was in bed. Well, we were at a lake house with other friends, and, and while I was in bed suffering and telling everybody, oh, y'all go, go have fun, I remember that I could hear them laughing as they skied by outside. <laughs> and everything in me was saying, oh, I want them to have fun, but everything in me says, I don't want them to have fun anymore. And I think that was just a little glimpse of hell, beholding heaven, seeing what you missed, and seeing what you missed forever. Hell is worse than we can possibly imagine. So what do we do with it in this life? I think we've got to see that hell does bring necessary hope to suffering people. This is fascinating to me, and Scott Sauls in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, really draws this out. Because whereas I have thought a whole lot about how heaven and the hope of heaven does bring us joy and, and strength in the midst of suffering, I've never thought that much about how God's leveling of justice also does bring a sense of joy. Now, let me kind of work through this because the Scriptures tell us very clearly that we are not to want people to go to hell. We are not to, to want people to be judged for their sin, but we are to, to long for justice. I mean, the whole purpose of the gospel is that Jesus came to bring us personal salvation, that he might usher in his kingship among his, among his world to usher in healing. And so that's who and what we um, are all about. We are to be about healing, bringing Jesus' resurrection power to the dead in the world. Both physically, both, both tangibly as well as spiritually. So we are to be about wanting God's kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. We want poverty, we want sickness, we want all things bad to be wiped away and replaced with all things good in light of God. So what does this whole idea of eternal judgment have to do in the midst of that? Well, Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian believer, said this in his Exclusion and Embrace, which is just a book he wrote. This is what he said. See if you can follow me here. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves. Okay, what in the world is he... It's like Dr. King's movement where he said, you can't drive out violence with violence, but only love and only peace can drive out violence, all right? So that's what we are called to as human beings. We're not to take revenge. We're, we're not to, uh, you know, we're to turn the other cheek. We're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who spitefully um, use us. So how do we do that? Well, the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate, quote, only when it comes from God. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. 
Violence thrives secretly nourished by belief in a God who rejects to wield the sword, who refuses to wield the sword. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of loving our enemy and being spitefully used by them, in the midst of having to pray for our enemy, the one who's abused us, the one who overlooks us, the one, in in, in other words, in the economy of God, the first are last and the last are first. And so how do we live in last place? It is in the hope that one day, someday, not X is going to go to hell but to live knowing that one day, someday, God is going to level His righteousness upon the earth and all things will be made good and true. And we long for that in the midst of injustice. You see, that's what must empower us to fight for justice. Howard Thurman, who preceded Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement, gave a lecture at Harvard in 1947. He said this, he said, Can you imagine a slave saying... I and all my children and grandchildren are consigned to to lives of endless brutality and grinding poverty. There's no judgment day in which any wrongdoing will ever be put right. That's crazy. You see, the God of our culture, who is just a God of love, not of wrath, not of justice, is a God that is afforded only those who live in peace and wealth. But you go tell the believers... In Syria, you go tell the believers in Iraq, you go tell the believers in Afghanistan that there's no judgment day. And all your friends that are being beheaded in the street and all the women who are being raped publicly and hung on a cross, eh, God is a God of love. Dear friends, justice brings hope that one day, someday, God wins. So yes... Romans 12:19 points this out, beloved never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Are you suffering right now? Thank God that one day he's going to level the scales. Thank God that one day He's not going to let evil reign. But there's a world coming that will last forever in which justice will reign forever. And then finally, hell is deserved. Romans 1, 24 through 25. This is God's response to our sin. So this is the temporal judgment of God on mankind. Therefore, God responded to the rebellion of His people by giving them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. There's some element in which hell is the final manifestation of God's judgment on sinful man now. You see what he did? He said, hey, you want to live a life without God? Go for it, buddy. That's what he was doing in Genesis 3. He was saying, you want this? Go for it. Here, you can have it. See what, see what kind of good you can bring to the world. And yet, the reality, though, and the teaching of Scripture is that 
even though God has given us over to our desires and to our passions in this life, He still restrains us to some point. It's called common grace. God allows the sun to to rise on the evil and the good. He allows it to rain on the evil and the good. But in hell, His common grace is removed. And He says, you want to be critical of other people? Well, go be critical for eternity. You want to be stingy? Go be stingy for eternity. You want just your money? Well, you go and take your money to hell with you. Do you see it? You want pleasure? Will you go just have your sex in hell forever? That's all you get. You get no love. You get no intimacy. You see, hell is the place where man gets precisely what he's been begging for. So let's deal with the last question. Why would God damn some to hell? It's really an easy one, because it's what we all deserve. Why does God damn some to hell? The the better question is this, why does God lavish His grace on some? We We shouldn't bring disbelief to the idea that God would bring wrath upon sinful man because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So there's nobody innocent. So the question is not, why would God damn some to hell? The question is, why would, would God bestow heaven on anybody? And the answer is, because He's love. Romans 5, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we deserved hell, while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Did you hear that? Through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. This morning, dear friends, and I don't do this every morning on Sunday morning, but this morning as we were singing about salvation, as we were thinking about or or proclaiming the reality that Jesus saves, as we were singing about the cross of Jesus Christ, I had in my heart, because I'm preaching on it this morning, very central, the reality of not just what I'm saved to, the very glory and love of God, but I had in my heart what I'm saved from. Our grandson Bennett, Whitney and Jed's middle child, was riding his little scooter yesterday, and right, I guess about 4 o'clock, 4.30, and he fell over, and he had an exposed end to his little handlebar, and it hit him right there. And he ended up in the ER on Halloween night. And they don't do stitches anymore, they do glue. Man, they stitched me up like crazy when I was a little kid. But glue, isn't that a great thing? And you know what the doctor said? If it had been just a little bit to the left or to the right, it would have taken out one of his eyes. And so this morning I woke up and I was praising God. And what was I praising God for? Thank you for saving little Bennett from losing an eye. Thank you that you directed that little... 
Do you see what he was saved from? And isn't that glorious? And so I have to ask you this morning, do you know that you're saved from everything that I've just described? Do you understand what is in place for those who have rebelled against God, who have made Him His enemy, who sat in judgment on God and said, no, you're not, you can't be like that. I'm going to make you like this. Do you understand that for those that don't receive the message of the gospel, that hell is a reality and there is no escaping it and there is no changing it, There is nothing more clear in the Scriptures. And the reason that Jesus taught so much on it is not because He wanted to to make us afraid and, and, and scare us into heaven, but because He loved us so much, He wanted us to have every chance to receive Jesus. And so this morning, dear friends, this is your chance to receive Jesus if you never have. And dear friends, if you have received Jesus, this is your opportunity to have a broader, deeper understanding and a grateful heart for all that God has saved you from. You see, let me just remind you that this teaching on hell comes in the context of the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. A man found a hidden treasure, sold everything, he had to have it. A man looking at pearls found the pearl of great price, sold everything because he had to have it. Do you understand that the gospel tells us this? That the hidden treasure and the pearl is not something that we buy. But the hidden treasure and the pearl is the reality that Jesus bought us for himself. You are the pearl of great price to Jesus. You are the hidden treasure to Jesus. And when you understand that, you're willing to sell anything to have that. The one who deserves the fire of hell, the one who deserves his soul to be empty forever. The Son of God came and lived and died so that all you must do is stand before him and say, I have nothing to bring but my guilt and shame, but that's what you've told me to bring to you and I accept you as my Savior. I accept you as my Lord. Thank you that you lived the life I could never live, that you died the death I could never die. Thank you that all I must do is believe on you, Jesus Christ, and I am saved from hell. And I am saved to heaven. And all I get, though I deserve condemnation, though I deserve an eternity of shame, an eternity of guilt, an eternity of wrath, all I get in heaven is an eternity of your love, an eternity of your acceptance, an eternity of your, 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 your presence. Dear friends, how could you reject that? What God says, if you do, then you deserve hell. Because what could God give but Himself? What else could He do? He would be an ogre if He said, okay, well, yeah, sin is real, but I'm going to give you Ten Commandments and go try to do them. And, you know, those that, those that do a pretty good job, no, He says, you'll, never, you'll die under the Ten Commandments. And so I had to send my son to live under him for you, but that's precisely what I did. Dear friends, would we turn to Jesus this morning and would we embrace him as our Savior, a Savior who has saved us from hell itself and a Savior who has saved us to heaven.
Amen? Amen. Thank you. I'll clap to that truth. Amen. Our great and glorious God, we lift our hands in worship to you because you are the God that has saved us from hell. We don't have to fear hell. Oh God, it grieves my soul to think that some in my own family to think that some of my own friends would choose hell in place of you. They would choose their own rule, their own authority of their lives, their own control, as opposed to bowing the knee to you. Oh God, I pray for the lost this morning. I pray for those who are stubbornly refusing to give in to your love and accept your grace and your mercy for them. Oh God, would you bring revival in downtown Memphis. Bring revival in this country. Bring revival in this world, oh God. We don't want anyone to perish and experience hell. So God, I pray that you would embolden us to speak of the glories of the cross, to speak of the hope of salvation. Oh Father, I pray that you would do great and mighty things. so that our loved ones and our neighbors don't have to experience all that I've just preached. But, oh God, you deserve praise. You deserve worship. You deserve glory over mankind. And we trust you. We give our hearts to you. We give our neighbors to you. We give this world to you because it's yours. Father, accomplish your work in us this morning, even as we go to these tables. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.